Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, it's important that we are in fellowship with God. Scripture teaches that all of our sins were paid for on the cross without exception, so that when we trust in Christ, sin is not the issue. The issue is faith in Christ. When we sin after salvation, it does not cause us to lose salvation. However, it does cause us to lose fellowship with God. Scripture says, though, that if we confess our sins, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sins to him, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at that point, we are restored to fellowship. In a position of fellowship, the Holy Spirit works in our life to teach us his word, to bring it to our memory, to produce spiritual growth, and all of the other factors related to the spiritual life. And so it's important for us to keep short accounts and to uh, constantly be aware of our a status in relationship to the Lord, that we may be utilizing our time and application of the Word in a way that counts for uh, eternity, counts for our spiritual growth. So we always take time before we study the Word to have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we are so very thankful that we have such a perfect salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, that when he was on the cross between those hours of 12 noon and 3 p.m. on that, that day, he paid the penalty for our sins. It was completed. As he stated before he died physically, it was finished, completed. Nothing can be added to that. And so, Father, we rejoice in the fact that we have forgiveness, that we have the sin penalty dealt with, and that we have eternal life because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our trust in him. And Father, we are thankful that we have your word, for it is your word that informs us about the nature of reality. It is your word that gives us an understanding of the purpose for the creation of the human race. 
It's your word that gives us an understanding of the purpose and plan of history, and that history is not just meaningless random events, but that history is moving toward an ultimate goal. And Father, it's your word that tells us that you are a God, the God of history, and you are working out your plan within history, and that as we come to understand your word, we come to understand your plan, then we can align our thinking with that, and we can begin to understand uh, the trends, the movements in our own time, and we see how our own lives as just a small element within that overall picture, that overall historical uh, movement, uh, how, our, how, our, how our lives fit within that. And so, Father, as we continue our study in Revelation today, thinking in terms of where things are headed, it should impact what we think about our own lives today. We pray that God the Holy Spirit would use the things that we teach today to challenge us and to remind us of the importance of living our lives today in light of eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study this morning in Revelation uh, chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. And we completed our study last time of the uh, fifth seal judge, I mean, excuse me, the fifth trumpet judgment. Now, just to bring you back to uh, orientation to what's happening in Revelation, Revelation deals with a time in the future known as the tribulation. The tribulation is a period of seven years that begins when the Antichrist, the evil personages, personage that comes on the scene uh, toward the end of history, signs a peace treaty with Israel. He is the ruler of a Western confederacy that we refer to as the revived Roman Empire, some sort of Western uh, European type of confederacy. And he is the, uh, he is indwelt by Satan and he has Satan's agenda at the very core of his uh, plan and purpose to try to finally establish Satan's rule on the planet and destroy God's, uh, God's plan for the human race, and for the planet. So the rapture occurs. The church, present-day believers, are taken uh, to be with the Lord in heaven. Sometime after that, there is the beginning of the tribulation. Now, this is something that is, I constantly, I teach this all the time, and every now and then I see light bulbs go off, and after somebody hears it the 369th time they go, wait a minute, I always thought the rapture began the tribulation. No, the rapture doesn't begin anything other than our time in heaven. The rapture ends the present dispensation, but what begins that last period of history known as the tribulation, also called Daniel's 70th week out of Daniel 9, is when the Antichrist signs that peace treaty with Israel. That's what starts the clock ticking for the uh, tribulation period. And so there's a transition period in between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Last time I pointed out that there will be people who uh, enter the tribulation as believers. They, 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 it's not that they're saved during the church age, that God forgot somebody. It's that they're saved during that transition period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. And so there, we don't know how long that period is going to be. It may be a week. It may be 
a month. It may be several years. We just don't know. But there are obviously going to be people who, as soon as they see their friends and family and loved ones get raptured, they're going to remember the gospel and trust in Christ, but not in time to go up in the rapture. So the tribulation period is set up in this, it's a seven-year period divided into two segments of three and a half years each. And it is in the first half of the tribulation that we have the first two series of judgments, the seven seal judgments and then the seven trumpet judgments. The seventh seal is broken by the Lord Jesus Christ, which reveals seven trumpet judgments. And those are covered in chapters uh, 8 through 11. But we are on in chapter 9, where 5, 5 and 6 are covered. When the seventh is open, that reveals the last series of judgments known as the seven uh, bold judgments. So in the beginning of Revelation chapter 8, we have the seven angels who sound the seven trumpets, and they prepare to sound them. And we have gone through these, these judgments and seen that the first four of the trumpet judgments focused on the earth, judgments that affected uh, systems that were geophysical or um, they were astronomical in their judgments. You have a couple of asteroids that hit the earth and do tremendous damage to the environment, to the planet, uh, to the saltwater seas, and to freshwater. But then when you come to the fifth judgment, the fifth trumpet judgment, and the sixth trumpet judgment, there is a tremendous shift in the nature of these two judgments because these two judgments involve two different demonic groups that are unleashed upon the human race. And when someone first comes to these judgments, it seems a little bit bizarre. For example, we have Revelation 9.3 out of the smoke that comes up from the abyss comes locusts on the earth. A power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And there's the description of these particular creatures that are released upon the earth and they have tails like scorpions and they have a sting that uh, brings some sort of disease or some sort of pain upon those who are afflicted that last for five months. They wish they could die, but they can't. It is a supernatural Judgment. But when you read this, you read some of these descriptions of these events and those in the sixth trumpet judgment, there are many people who read them and go, well, this just, this is hard to believe. This is, this is just bizarre how, how odd this is. There must be some sort of symbolic meaning to all of this because this can't be understood or taken uh, literally, I mean, if it's literal, we have these demons running around and on the planet causing and all this harm and, and bringing about all of this terror uh, upon the earth, and that just seems so bizarre. So maybe these, these two judgments really are symbolic of something else. They just sound like uh, some kind of science fiction or some sort of fantasy. And so the attempt is to make these uh, things relate to various different uh, physical things that we see around us. For example, there have been those, even among dispensationalists, who have interpreted these in a non-literal fashion. For example, there's been the attempt to interpret the these locust-scorpion uh, 
demons in the fifth trumpet judgment as uh, possibly Huey Cobra or I guess in today's world that would be Black Hawk uh, helicopters firing missiles using uh, biological chemical warfare bringing about all of these uh, horrible diseases upon man and then the sixth trumpet judgment which sees the release of this 200 uh, million horse, horse army coming across the Euphrates as, the, as a, an assault from the, the Chinese, that finally the Chinese can, could field an army of 200 million, and so that's what uh, this would be. And this just flies in the face of a literal interpretation of these events. But when you look at this, Literally, it, it, it challenges us if we don't have an understanding of the scope of what the Bible teaches about demons and about Satan and about the reality of these creatures and their involvement in history. So before we get into the sixth trumpet judgment, and as we have concluded the fifth trumpet judgment, I want to pause this morning and just review for us what the Bible teaches about demons and their involvement in human history. Again and again, as we go through our study of Revelation, we keep coming back to this whole um, doctrine of Satan and demons because God is not only bringing human history to a close uh, in terms of judging the sins of nations, the sins of, of uh, those in rebellion against him, but he is also bringing to a close the judgment upon the uh, demons, upon Satan. And if we look at the end of Revelation 9, if you just turn down to the, the last couple of verses, beginning in verse uh, 20, where we have a conclusion to these last two judgments. After all of this has happened, after all this horror, this terror, these diseases, this just a third of the human race is killed in the last trumpet judgment alone. A third. That's not counting the ones who die during the other trumpet judgments. That's just in the sixth trumpet judgment. So it's a tremendous number of human beings lose their life at this particular time. And it is, as it were, God's wake-up call because this immediately precedes the last and the most intense and worst form of the tribulation. And in verse 20 we read, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They don't change their mind. And the more intense it gets, the more stubborn and the more entrenched they become in their resistance to God. They do not repent of the works of their hands. They don't change their mind. They don't turn to God. That they should not, and this, and then the works of their hands is further described in the last part of the verse, that they should not worship demons. So you see this active demon worship that becomes uh, more and more overt and characteristic of uh, mankind during the tribulation period. They don't repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. It's like, what does it take to get their attention? Well, nothing will get their attention. This is the characteristic pattern of the earth dweller 
who has rejected God and has his mind fixed completely upon the temporal, upon earth, and has set himself completely against God. And the more God extends his grace and the more God brings judgment, the more entrenched and hostile they become to God because they just hate God and hate anything related to God, uh, and that's their primary characteristic. And we see, we see that same sort of trend in many cultures today be, that are dominated by various uh, human viewpoint systems of thought that as people who are atheists, people who are unbelievers, uh, resist what Christians do, and they become more and more hostile. We've just seen this in our own uh, generation the past 20 years, people becoming very hostile about uh, putting up nativity scenes at Christmas in a, at City Hall or having the Ten Commandments in, in, a, uh, in a courtroom, and they just go ballistic over this. And it's like, well, well I don't see Christians getting upset or going ballistic over the fact that uh, uh, Jews might have a menorah out for Hanukkah or uh, Muslims might uh, have, celebrate Ramadan. You don't see Christians uh, getting antagonistic and hostile to that. So why do all these people become so hostile to what Christians are doing? And I think that is because the reality is that the Bible is true and that Christianity is true and it is the truth that is being attacked by Satan. It is the truth that is being attacked by those who reject God. And they're not attacking these other religions because Satan is not uh, using his different religious systems to attack one another. The focus is to destroy the credibility of the truth. And so it is the truth that generates hostility, and the lie does not generate that kind of hostility. So to understand all of this, we have to understand what the Bible teaches about Satan and demons and how human history fits within this overall framework of what we call the angelic conflict or Satan, Satan's rebellion against God. So I want to summarize that this morning in, because we've gone over it in a lot of detail. Uh, some of you have not gone through the detail because you're relatively new to the congregation, and so a good overview is good for you as well. And so we'll look at this in terms of three, uh, three segments this morning. The first part, we'll address the question, who are the demons and from whence do they come? The second part, we'll look at demonic assaults in human history. We have to go through the first part so we understand who we're talking about and how the, how the angelic conflict is set up and what the structure is. The second part gives us a pattern showing that the events that will occur in the future, in the tribulation, these, these two demonic assaults that occur here, plus there will be a third one that occurs in Revelation 12, that seems so fantastic that, that some people may address and go, well, that just sounds so bizarre. So sounds like Star Trek or Battleship Galactica or whatever, Battlestar Galactica or whatever it is. It's just science fiction. But when you look at what happens in the future, we can also look at the Scripture and see that there are things that happened in the Old Testament that are of the same kind of event, and that shows us that John isn't just uh, having hallucinations on the island of Patmos, but that everything within the 
the visions that he has in the book of Revelation fits within the total framework of the Bible. And then we'll conclude with a brief look at demons and believers in the church age. So first part, who are the demons and from whence do they come? So we have to identify who these demons are. And the term demon describes these angels who followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God in eternity past. And we recognize that God created the angels initially as perfect creatures. God is perfect, and he can't create anything less than perfection. He created the angels before he created anything else. They were intelligent beings. They are, their bodies are immaterial. They are not made of the same kind of matter that our bodies are made of. They operate in a different uh, sphere than we do with different capabilities than we have, but they are intelligent and they have volition. That is, they have the capacity to make decisions related to their worship of God, their service of God, which affect their destiny. So God created the angels as perfect. Angels had volition. They could choose to obey or to disobey God. He did not create them as robots or automatons. Uh, he created them with different orders, different uh, ranks of angels, different uh, abilities. Uh, they, there are three uh, that are most prominent, especially when it comes to the study of the angelic conflict and uh, the study of Revelation. The first are cherubs or cherubim. The I-M ending is from the Hebrew, and that's the plural. The I-M relates to the English uh, ending S. So cherubs or cherubim is the correct term. A singular is cherub. Now, we're not really sure where that word derived, what the word means. There are various guesses. Some think that it might be related to the Akkadian word karibu, which means to pray or to consecrate or to bless, but it's uncertain. Now, there's a, uh, oh, there's some little special magazine out right now put, put out by U.S. News and World Report on secrets of the Bible, and they have a cutaway in, their, in an article on angels where they tell, uh, come, come up with some sort of made-up definition of what the word cherub means, and there's no uh, he recognized Hebrew lexicon that recognizes any meaning for the word cherub. So you always have to watch what is said in secular media because they usually don't have any idea what they're talking about or they're dominated by liberal theologians who have rejected the Bible before they even give it a chance. So we don't really know what the term means. The cherubs were the highest order of angels that God created. And when we see them in Scripture, they are always associated with overseeing the operations of the throne of God, protecting the throne of God, uh, guarding the throne of God, the presence of God. The first time we see a cherub in the Scripture is the cherubs that are posted as guards outside of the Garden of Eden to protect it so that man no longer has access to the tree of life. But remember, Eden was also the place of God's presence on the earth, and so they are also guarding, uh, guarding that. Cherubs are always seen to be are always associated with God's holiness, His righteousness, and His justice. Ezekiel in the Old Testament presents the 
uh, clearest and most detailed descriptions of cherubs. They're not these little uh, human baby type figures with wings like you find in, in Renaissance art, but they are uh, quite challenging figures. They're large. They are not always presented quite the same way. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the cherubs presented there have four faces and four wings. The four faces are on each one of them. They have the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, and the face of a bull. Underneath their wings they have human hands, and their legs were like those of a calf and a burnished bronze, so they, there was a brilliance, a shine uh, to their, uh, their, their, the way they appeared. But in Ezekiel chapter 41, verse 18, there are cherubs present who only have two faces, uh, one is a human face, and one is the face of a young, uh, young lion. So there's this slightly different appearance there. The cherubs were in the presence of God always, always surrounding his throne. And the cherub that was the most significant is the one that's presented in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 and following, that describes one of the cherubs as anoint, the anointed cherub who covered. He had a he was the closest of all of the cherubs to the throne of God, and he is the one uh, within whom sin is discovered, and he is the one that is identified as Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 through 14. So Lucifer, whom we also refer to as Satan, was the highest of all of these. Uh, all of the angels, and of all of the cherubs. Now, a second order of angels are called seraphs or seraphim. They're very similar to cherubs. Uh, they're also associated with the throne of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. They're pictured in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, and yet there's a one distinction that they have with cherubs. Cherubs have four wings and seraphs have six wings. So just remember that alliteration that with the letter S, a seraph has six wings, and then you can remember that the cherubs are the ones with the uh, four wings. They seem to be associated, though, with angelic worship of God, whereas the cherubs are associated with guardianship or protection of the throne. The seraphs are associated with singing praise to God as presented in Isaiah 6, 6. With their six wings, they use two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and the other two to fly, and they are stationed above the throne of God. And then there's a third class that's very similar to cherubs and seraphs, and that's the living creatures that we studied in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. They, too, are associated with the throne of God and the worship of God. So there are those who will identify the living creatures that we read about in Revelation with either cherubs or seraphs. They have certain things in common with both of them. Like cherubs, they had four manifestations, but not all in the same one. But then, as we saw with cherubs, there are some differences in the different descriptions. The uh, living creatures are presented. One has the face of a lion, another the face of a calf, uh, another uh, the face of a man, and another the face of an eagle. Like cherubs, they... Uh, they're also called, uh, they're called living beings. Cherubs are identified as living beings in Ezekiel 1, verse 5. But unlike cherubs, they don't have four wings. The living 
uh, beings in Revelation 4 have six wings. And like seraphs, they also sing praise to the holiness of God. So they are similar to both cherubs and seraphs, but yet different. So they're usually classified as a third set of angels. Then we also know from Scripture that there is an archangel, only one archangel. That is the archangel Michael. There is one messenger angel. That is Gabriel, and Gabriel is specifically associated with disclosing revelation, especially uh, that which is related to God's plan for Israel. It is Gabriel who is the angel who explained to Daniel the visions that he had, specifically the vision in Daniel chapter 9 of the 70 weeks. It is Gabriel who announces to Mary that she is going to give birth uh, to the Savior. Now, as the highest and most influential of the angels, Lucifer succumbed to arrogance. Lucifer is the, he's the poster child of the saying that it's all about me. He was the first one to come up with that idea that it was all about him, and he expressed it in the five I wills in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. And he became so caught up in his own abilities, his own intelligence, his own talents, that he deceived himself, which is a major characteristic of arrogance, self-deception. He deceived himself into thinking that he could uh, do the job ruling the universe better than God could. And so in expressing his desire, he said he wanted to raise himself above the stars of God, a reference to angels, and uh, above the throne of God, and he wanted to be like God. And so that is at the very essence of Lucifer or Satan's desire is to be God, to be worshipped as God, and to run things according to his own, uh, his own will. Now, God gave him time to uh, carry out his scheme, and he began to uh, entice the other angels to follow him, and over a course of time, we don't know how long it was, he was able to entice uh, one-third of all of the angels to follow him. Now, we don't know how many angels there are. They're described in the Scripture as being myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands. There are millions, if not billions, of angels, and a third of these followed Satan in his rebellion. And we refer to those who followed Satan as fallen angels, or as demons. Fallen angels are as demons. They are those who are aligned with Satan, and they have various organizations, and there are various leaders among these fallen angels, and we've studied some of them. We saw that uh, Abaddon, also called Apollyon in the Greek, is the leader of these angels that were restricted and imprisoned in the abyss. There is another name for a leader of the angels, Beelzebul, used by the Jews, and referred to in Matthew chapter 12. So there are leaders among the angels, and uh, the fallen angels, and they carry out uh, the bidding, the plan, the strategy of Satan. Now, eventually, we know that God uh, convened some sort of trial, and he, and he determined a sentence or punishment for these fallen angels and for Satan. This is referred to in Matthew uh, 25, uh, 41 and 42, and this mentions the fact that God had prepared the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. These are the demons. Now, if the lake of fire has already been prepared, perfect tense in the verb there, 
then that indicates that it is that it is located in a specific place today. It is in existence, but it is empty because God has not sent Satan or the demons there yet. There is a there, there's a hold placed on the final execution of that sentence. So human history fits within the reason that that hold occurred. That Satan apparently accused God of being unfair, of being un- unjust, of not giving him a chance to really show what he can do in ruling uh, the angels and in ruling the universe and planet Earth. For by this time, the Earth had been created. It was created before the fall of Satan. And uh, that's described in Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, that all of the sons of God, that's a term for angels, sang for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. So Satan challenged God's fairness, his righteousness, his justice, and within this there are different different aspects to this challenge. And Satan wants to show, wants to prove that he can do what God can do. So God then determined on a demonstration to give Satan the opportunity to show what he could do. But within that demonstration, what God is demonstrating is that no creature is capable of running the universe. There's no creature that has the omniscience, the omnipotence to be able to carry out uh, the goal of running something like the universe. And so I outlined five things that God is going to demonstrate within human history. First of all, he's going to demonstrate his righteousness. Satan challenges God's righteousness. How can a righteous God sentence his creatures to eternity in the lake of fire? And God is going to demonstrate that he he is perfect righteousness, and this is the only acceptable judgment. Second, he's going to demonstrate his justice, that he is just, that this is a, a... fair and just sentence. And the reason is that in history, in human history, God demonstrates that even the most innocuous of sins, such as just eating a piece of fruit, results in such chaos and calamity, such suffering, such heartache that we have seen in human history, all the wars, all the famines, all the economic disasters, all of the uh, horrible things that we've seen from genocide or whatever Uh, you can think of all of these horrible things are the result of Adam eating a piece of fruit. Adam didn't do anything nearly as horrible as Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler or anyone else that you can think of that has uh, been horrible, some like a mass murderer. All he did was he ate a piece of fruit, and that's what generated all this horror. So a sentence of eternity in the lake of fire is mild compared to all that flows out of this kind of a rebellion. So God demonstrates his justice and his righteousness. He also demonstrates his love, that love is totally compatible with righteousness and justice, and that God, uh, that, that the execution of judgment on a disobedient creature is just as much a part of love as providing salvation for others. That's something lost today in the criminal system, that the execution of a criminal is an act of love toward the victim. And so it demonstrates God's love. Also, it demonstrates the inability of the creature to rule the creation, that no creature has the capacity, 
the knowledge, the power to truly rule creation. You have to be able to know every piece of minutia, every bit of data in order to uh, control the data and to govern the creation. And then finally, it demonstrates the cataclysmic consequences of sin. That sin is never just a little white sin. It always has uh, unintended consequences and results in terrible, uh, terrible suffering upon billions and billions of creatures. Okay, that answers the first part. Who are the demons? And uh, what is their role within human history? Now we come to part two, which has to do with demonic assaults within human history. Demonic assaults within human history. First of all, we recognize that Satan has a strategic goal in relation to the human race, and that is, and in relation to the angelic conflict, and that is to demonstrate that he has the ability to govern creation And secondly, that God can't accomplish his ends. He's trying to do two things, to show, first of all, that he can truly govern creation. And secondly, to show that God can't. And he's going to try to accomplish the first, but the problem is, once he led Adam into sin, remember the temptation, if you eat the fruit, you'll be like God? The problem is that he generated a whole bunch of little gods who are in competition with him. Now, every single human being wants to be God, just like Satan does. And the fact that there is all of this horror, all this warfare, all of this disaster on planet Earth is a testimony to the fact that Satan just can't control things. Because it's not that his agenda is horror and evil and chaos. His agenda is to promote peace and stability and just and show that he can rule as God does. And the fact that we have all these horrors going on just is testimony that he can't accomplish what he intends to accomplish. And his second objective then is to destroy God's ability, and this is primarily manifested in his assault against the Jews because God has promised Abraham and the descendants of Abraham that God will give them that piece of real estate that exists in the Middle East, and that they will exist in peace and harmony and have a fantastic kingdom under the rule and reign of the Messiah. And so if Satan can stop that, destroy all the Jews before God fulfills his promise, then Satan can show that God is incapable of doing what he has promised to do. So there's this twofold prong to his strategy. One is to promote his own ability to rule and govern the creation, and second, to show that God just can't do it. Now, the second thing we note in terms of these assaults is that that there are several ways in which Satan attacks the human race. And under this second point, the primary way in which Satan attacks the human race is through what we call demon influence. Demon influence. Now, there's a difference between demon influence and demon possession. Demon influence is Satan's attempt to subvert man's thinking, to influence man's thinking. So demon influence has to do with Satan's attempts to influence the thinking of man against God. And this has occurred throughout human history in both direct ways and in indirect ways, in direct ways and in indirect ways. Now, demon influence is related to thought systems. It's related to religious 
ideas. You have all kinds of world religions that are promoted by Satan in order to distract people from the truth and to divert their attention from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you have all kinds of religious systems, and all of them, with the exception of biblical Christianity, emphasizes emphasize human morality or good works as a means to eternal life, a means to a relationship with God. Then you have various philosophies, philosophies that don't talk anything about a God, but they promote different forms of morality and different forms of human enrichment. So you have all kinds of different philosophies. Then you just have uh, what is sometimes referred to as worldviews or frameworks of thinking about life. And Satan promotes these different worldviews and frameworks to get people to think, to organize all the data of life so that they think they really understand what life is all about apart from God, apart from the truth of the Scripture. And ultimately, all of these thought systems, whether they're religious, philosophical, what they might be, they all appeal to the arrogance of the sin nature to the lust patterns of the sin nature, and to the trends of everybody's sin nature. So there's something out there for everybody that means that you don't have to admit that you are a, uh, a creature who is dependent upon God, who has been in rebellion against God. Now, the, Satan, as I said, uses uh, in his influence or attempts to influence man two ways, directly and indirectly. Mostly, it's indirect. But we have some examples in Scripture of his direct, his attempts to directly influence man. The first is in the Garden of Eden, when Satan uh, indwells a creature, a serpent, and he approaches uh, the wife of Adam and says, "You know what has God said about the fruit?" And she says, "Well, we can eat about the fruit in the garden." He said, "Well, we can uh, eat of any fruit of the tree in the garden except for uh, this one, and we're not to." Uh, eat it or touch it. She misquoted God. But Satan has already predisposed her thinking by the way he's posed the question. And then he says, well, the only reason God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is because he knows that when you eat it, you'll be like him. Ah. So he's influencing her thinking by the questions he's asking because that gets her focused on the wrong thing. This is something that you see down through the ages in church history, that theologians start asking the wrong questions before long they're, they're running down a path of, uh, of theological error and heresy. So you have to be careful of, what, uh, of answering certain questions. You have to think through questions very, uh, very carefully. And so we see this direct way in which Satan sought to influence uh, influence the woman. Also uh, parallel to that is Satan's direct attempt to influence the thinking of Christ in the three temptations when he is in the wilderness. So these are direct attempts. But there's mostly Satan uses indirect attempts through human thought systems and appeals to the sin nature. One example that we have during the life of Christ is in Luke chapter 22, uh, 31, when Jesus has warned Peter that he will betray him. And Peter has adamantly stated that he will uh, never betray the Lord. And in Luke 22:31, we read, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you 
that he may sift you as wheat. Now, there's no picture anywhere in the betrayal of Christ by Peter of Satan overtly or directly uh, influencing Peter. It, it is done subtly through indirect means uh, through his sin nature. Another example from Peter occurs in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. In that context, it comes immediately after Peter has made this profound admission that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And immediately after that, uh, Christ began to warn the disciples that he would be taken to Jerusalem and he would be killed and raised on the third day. And Peter does a 180, just like we do. He moves from the high points of his spiritual life and recognition of truth to uh, high points of his sin nature and his arrogance. And he rebukes the Lord, the scripture says, and says, God forbid that this should happen. So he moves from being in fellowship to out of fellowship in a heartbeat, just like we do, and begins to operate on arrogance. And he says, uh, and the Lord turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter is not indwelt by Satan. Peter isn't Satan, but he is being influenced by satanic thought, which is any kind of thought that is antagonistic to the truth of God's word or is in opposition to it. And so Peter is operating on human viewpoint at that time, which is just another form of demonic influence. And Satan is consistently promoting his agenda through these various thought systems. And this is what lies behind warnings such as 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober. That means to think objectively on the basis of the word of God. Be vigilant, that is to be watchful, to carefully look at what you're thinking. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the context of 1 Peter 5 is the context of arrogance. That don't succumb to arrogance, but be humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Don't succumb to arrogance, because that was Satan's uh, original sin. So we have demon influence. This is the way in which uh, Satan seeks to influence man's uh, thinking. Now, demon influence is, uh, affects believers and unbelievers alike. Whenever we operate on any kind of a thought system that is apart from the Word of God, we are operating on demon influence. Uh, any kind of uh, human viewpoint is just demon influence. If it's not biblical, then it is uh, demon influence. He influences man through all these various rationales and systems of thought. So demon influence applies to both believers and to unbelievers. And the solution to demon influence, which is also called worldliness in the New Testament, is to take in and to study the Word of God and let the Word of God change the way in which we think. Romans 12.2 says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's how we get rid of all that demonic influence that's in our soul, is through a study of the Word of God. Also, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 describes putting on the armor of God to protect us from demon influence, and ultimately that has to do with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Now, the other way in which Satan seeks to influence things is through demon possession. Demon possession. People always get real concerned about demon possession. It's a very simple definition. Demon possession occurs when one or more of these immaterial demons also called evil spirits or fallen angels, 
invade the body of an unbeliever and take over the control of his body. Now, it doesn't destroy the personality or the uh, consciousness, let's say, of the individual, because an individual who is under demon possession can still respond to the truth of the gospel. And that is the only way in which they can be uh, delivered from that demon, that that demon can be uh, removed from them, is if they trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So demon possession is only for unbelievers. But a lot of believers can become psychotic, can come under all kinds of emotional disturbances, uh, can have all sorts of other problems that may imitate the characteristics of demon possession. But it's not demon possession, and demon possession is very clear. Uh, it's very clear that only unbelievers can be demon-possessed. For example, 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19 uh, tell us that the believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that word for temple is one of two words used for temple in the, in, in the New Testament. One word describes the entire temple complex. Now, anyone could go into the whole temple, into the outer courtyards of the temple. But the other word that's used for temple in the New Testament is the word naos, which refers only to the inner sanctum, where only the priest could go. And this is where the presence of God is. And if anything unclean, anything that had not gone through the ritual processes of, of, of cleansing, went into the uh, Holy of Holies or the Holy Place, then they would die instantly. That which is unclean cannot come into the uh, presence of God in the inner, inner sanctum. And that's what those two passages talk about, is not just the fact that the believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but that the believer is made a special, sanctified, holy place for the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ that makes it impossible by that terminology, to be indwelt by a demon. So demon possession should never worry or be a concern for a believer. And then another way in which Satan attacks the human race has occurred uh, in terms of direct demonic assaults. There's one in the Old Testament, and there are three in Revelation. The Old Testament one is what gives us a pattern for understanding the uh, ones in Revelation that this isn't some sort of science fiction or some sort of fantasy, and this has to do with the demonic assault that occurred in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis 6, 1 and 2 we read, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So you have this episode that occurs before the Noahic flood where you have this group called the sons of God who see the beautiful daughters of men and they take them as their wives and they produce children. Now, who are these sons of God? Well, Job 1, 6, Job 2, 1, and Job 38, 7 all use this terminology, sons of God, and it's the term in the Hebrew, B'neha Elohim, and it always refers to angels because they have been created by God. That's the idea of the term sons of God. And it is a term that is applied both to fallen angels and to holy angels, to both of them. So what you have is a situation where 
these fallen angels have figured out a way to transform themselves into a human being look-alike in a way that is able to sexually generate offspring. And the purpose was to destroy or dilute the pure humanity of the human race in order to keep God from fulfilling the promise that he had made in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, the seed of the serpent being Satan and that the seed of the woman ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the warning there and the promise there, the first hint of the gospel, is that God would provide a solution through the human race, and that the Savior needed to be true humanity in order to uh, be a substitute for the human race. Now Satan figures all that out, and he's going to try to stop that, by destroying the gene pool of the human race through this uh, interbreeding with the fallen angels. And God stops that. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's just so far-fetched. It can't really mean that. And they try to identify these sons of God as uh, something else. However, two passages in the New Testament affirm this. One is in Jude, verses 6 and 7. And angels who did not keep their own domain, and the word there for own domain means their original place. It's called arche, which is related to that, uh, to a Greek word for first place. Did not keep their original position, but they abandoned their proper abode. See, they stepped down from being an angel to taking on this, this, uh, pseudo humanity. And he has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness. So he has punished them. They are now restricted in a dark prison for the judgment of the great day. There will be a future judgment for, for these particular uh, angels. Just as, Then we have a comparison in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. So the judgment is compared to God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you have the key phrase, since they in the same way as these. Now, that seems a little unclear in the English. Who's the they and who are the these? Well, the they refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a feminine pronoun. And Sodom and Gomorrah are cities and would be referred to with a feminine pronoun. These is masculine pronoun. And that refers to the angel. So what it's saying is Sodom and Gomorrah did something in the same way and did the same kind of thing that these angels did. So Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, that is the cities of God, Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way as these angels indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So Sodom and Gomorrah were engaged in homosexuality. That's going after strange flesh. It wasn't what God had designed, man and woman, male and female. It was male and male and female and female. And so the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is a sexual sin, and that sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is compared to the ultimate sexual sin of these angels. So we have a very clear statement there related to the Genesis 6 uh, angels, and then uh, if we're going to translate it and, uh, and correct it, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, that is the 
these cities in the same way as these, that is, the angels. Now, Second Peter has two, or Peter has two passages, one in Second Peter and one in First Peter that refer to the same thing. Second Peter 2, 4 says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now, that's not talking about the original fall. That's talking about the Genesis 6 event. But cast them into Hades, literally, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. See, this can't refer to, to the fallen angels as a whole in the act of following Lucifer, because that would mean that all the fallen angels are in a, in a pit of darkness, chained in darkness, and reserved for judgment. But we know from episodes during the life of Christ, there are certain demons who are still free to operate. So it can't refer to all the fallen angels, but only to a group of them. And they are reserved for judgment. And second, and this, this sin of theirs is related to the time of Noah in 2 Peter 2.5. Then 1 Peter 3.18-20 through 20, uses the same kind of analogy, specifically look at just uh, verses 19 and 20, which also he went, that's Jesus Christ, and made proclamation to the spirits, that is the demons, now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So it identifies their sin as something that occurred in the days of Noah. And so this gives us a pattern in the Old Testament for what appears to be almost science fiction, that these angels became uh, like human beings, and then they got involved with uh, marrying women, and they produced offspring called Nephilim that perverted the makeup of the human race. But that could occur in that dispensation because God allowed it. Now, we live in a period of time in a civilization between the flood and the tribulation period when God has restricted this kind of activity from the demons. But he is going to allow it again during the tribulation period in order to bring to a head both the judgment of man and the judgment of the angels together in his final judgment of evil. So once we see this within the pattern of Scripture, it makes uh, it makes perfect sense. It may seem bizarre in terms of our experience, but that's why God has revealed it to us so that we can understand it. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the role of, a- of demons in relation to believers in the church age. The role of demons, I believe, is restricted in the church age. They are not visible. They are not as overt as they were in certain times in the Old Testament or as they will be in the tribulation. But they are still the agents of Satan and very much involved in promoting primarily demon influence among the human race. But believers don't need to worry and focus on Satan or demons because the focus needs to be on the Word of God. We need to understand the truth of God's word. And as Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10 and following, we need to put on the full armor of God. It is through the word of God that we are protected. And it is on the basis of God's truth that God uh, takes care of believers. And so the focus doesn't need to be on Satan. Now, we know that there's all kinds of strange things that go on in Christendom today. And there are certain groups of Christians who make a big deal about demon possession and demon influence, and we need to go out and stomp, uh, stomp the devil. 
and we need to go out and defeat him, and there's this, just, just this morbid focus on demonism. And this last, uh, last what, two, three weeks ago when I was up in, uh, up in Canada, went up to the Good Seed Conference there, I got to meet a, a couple there that, had, uh, that came up to tell me their, their story. And they had go- gone, they lived in this small town up in Alberta, where they had uh, been involved in a church up there that had really gotten into all this bizarre demon, demonic stuff. And they were looking for demons behind every tree and demon activity everywhere. And finally the man got to a point where he said, this just wasn't what I had grown up with as a Christian, what I knew of before. Now I was just, everything was sort of dark and depressing. I was scared and I thought I would see cars following me at night that were filled with demons and it just got really bizarre. So he, one night after having one of these experiences, he just pulled off to the side of the road and began to pray that God would lead him to the truth, that he knew something was wrong but didn't know what it was. And so he, uh, uh, a couple of weeks later, he contacted an organization that was uh, promoting a book on uh, spiritual warfare that I had written, and the book that Tommy and I wrote on, what the Bible, now it's titled, What the Bible Teaches About Spiritual Warfare. And he read that and completely changed his whole understanding, made it biblical of what demons can do today and how demons are involved with believers. And his wife read it. They took it to their Sunday school teacher at this church, and he read it, and they made it a source of study for the Sunday school class. And then the whole church got involved studying and changed the whole church. And uh, just they did a complete 180 and got out of all that uh, demonic focus because the focus isn't on the demonic. The focus for the believer in the church age is on the truth of God's word. And what we have in the scripture is a clear statement that from Genesis 3 until the resolution with the final destruction of Satan at the end of the millennium, that everything the human race is doing somehow relates to this angelic revolt. God announced to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush his head. And this happened ultimately at the cross when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. That secured Satan's defeat. But he is still alive and active in human history and so believers need to be warned, as Peter does in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, that the devil goes about like a roaring lion, but that we need to arm ourselves with the truth of God's word, and that is the only protection. Satan has been defeated because Christ died on the cross for our sins, and so it is the grace of God and the love of God is demonstrated on the cross that secures our ultimate victory in the angelic conflict, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to put all of it together in just uh, one overarching uh, lesson that that helps us to see our role, the place of the human race, and the place of each of us individually as believers in the church age in terms of this angelic conflict, that we have been saved for a purpose, and that is to glorify you within the angelic conflict to demonstrate your righteousness, your justice, and your grace. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. All that is necessary is for you to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that your sins are completely paid for by him on the cross, 
And when you believe in him as your Savior, that instant, God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ, declares you justified, regenerates you, gives you eternal life, and you are forever his and can never lose that salvation. Father, we pray that you challenge the rest of us with the need to press on in our spiritual life, to study your word, and to think not in terms of the world system or demon influence, but in terms of the truth of your word, that this is the only source of real freedom, freedom in our souls. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a substitute for our sins. We pray this in his name. Amen.